have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eye than the wandering of the appetite. This is this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join me now one more time by bowing your heads and praying with me? Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, we now ask that you would speak to us through the preaching of the word. Father, we thank you that your word is not null and void. It is powerful. It changes us from the inside out. It creates new worlds. It creates reality. And it gives us the hope that we need that we could never find in our own endeavors. Father, we thank you that once again you have been faithful in summoning each and every one of us by name to come once again and to be fed by your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be submissive to what your word teaches and that we would rely upon your spirit to apply the effectiveness of the word so that we would change by it, that we would live our lives in submission to it, and that we would center our identity around what the word says about us, that we would find our hope in the destiny that the word tells us it is, and that we would live out the purpose and the mission that the word teaches us we are to live out. Oh God, now would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Question for you guys this afternoon, and it goes like this. What is the one topic, what is the one issue that Jesus talks more about than any other thing as it's recorded for us in the Bible? Out of all the things that Jesus teaches us, out of all the things that Jesus was concerned with that he talks about throughout the Gospels written for us in the Bible, what is that one thing that Jesus talks about more than any other thing that he spoke of? The answer, let me read to you a quote from Chaplain Richard Halverson. Richard Halverson was for many years chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and he says this in his book, quote, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money, end quote. This is shocking, isn't it? Many of us assume that out of the things that Jesus talks about the most, surely it must be about God's love or forgiveness of sins or eternal life. But no, according to Halverson, what Jesus talks more about anything else is money. Now, just in case you think Chaplain Halverson is exaggerating his point, let me give you guys some hard numbers. 16 out of a total 38 parables that Jesus teaches in the gospel deal with money and possessions. Shockingly, in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of ten verses, a total of 288 verses in all, have something to do with money and possessions. And if you zoom out to the entire Bible, you would be shocked to discover there are 500 verses roughly about prayer, 500 verses about faith, and over 2,000 verses about money and possessions. Clearly, Jesus and really the whole Bible sees it necessary in speaking about this particular topic over and over and over for its readers, which is why it explains why Solomon, even though he just touched on this topic of money in the previous chapter, which we studied last week, he comes to it again in our chapter today, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, because just like Jesus, like the Bible, Solomon knows we need to come back and linger on this issue of money And this issue of wealth, because it is a topic that is constantly prevalent in our hearts. And when you consider 
the way that our culture is, it makes total sense why the Bible is so repetitive when it comes to money. Just recently, CBS did a poll on the top 10 fears of American. Let me read to you the top 10 fears of American. It goes as follows. Number one, government corruption. Number two, cyber terrorism. Number three, corporate tracking of personal data. Number four, terrorist attacks. Number five, government tracking of personal data. Number six, biowarefare. Warfare, excuse me. Number seven, identity theft. Number eight, economic collapse. Number nine, running out of money in the future. And finally, number five, credit card fraud. All of these are the top ten fears that your American peers are chronically fearing. And if you notice, they either directly or indirectly deal with the issue of money, which means what? It means that if there's anything under the sun in this life that make us go sighing all the time, that feel us, that make us feel so weary and, and concerned, Money would definitely be one of those things that make us go overwhelmed and make us go sighing all the time. And so, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is coming back to this topic that he just left in the previous chapter. He wants once again to address this topic of money because he knows what you and I know, what every American knows, that we are constantly, chronically worrying, fearful, fed up, and concerned about the topic of money. But this time, as he once again readdresses this issue, he's going to look at it from the standpoint of a particular problem known as greed. Because Solomon wants to show us the dangers of what happens when you and I are chronically craving and therefore greedy for money. If you're not careful, greed will take you down a path that will lead you to a vain and meaningless life. And therefore, in the hopes of us not falling into that kind of danger, three things he wants to show us from our text today. Number one, what our greed for money does to us. Number two, why our greed for money is bad for us. And number three, how we can be saved from our greed for money. Okay? What it does to us, why it's bad for us, and how we can be saved from it. Okay? Let's jump right in. Number one, what our greed for money does to us. Read along with me one more time, verse one of our passage where Solomon writes the following. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. If you have a pen or pencil... Underline in your Bibles that phrase at the end of verse 1 where it says, It lies heavy on mankind. According to Solomon, there is an evil that, quote-unquote, is heavy on mankind. Now, if that's not very clear, it's a little bit too abstract, let's try it one more time in a more recent translation of verse 1 where it says the following. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. That's a little bit better. A little clearer. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying that there is a problem, an evil that is common among mankind, a heavy problem that everyone feels the weight of, and that is the problem of greed. Solomon is saying is that greed is a universal problem to where everyone feels the pull of, everyone feels the weight of upon their shoulders. Now here's the question. Why does Solomon find it necessary to state something so poignant, so profound at the beginning of our passage? Well, if you know anything about Solomon, you would know that this man was a very wise person, right? Solomon has been around the proverbial block or two, and he knows things about life that many of us probably don't know, or maybe a better way to put it, many of us don't want to know, right? And one thing that Solomon wants to point out that maybe many of us are blind to willingly is that Every person that walks on this planet, every human being, man, woman, and child, every human being is greedy. 
every person is greedy, including every single one of you. Listen, I don't care if you consider yourself a devout spiritual person, a radical Christian, a sacrificing saint, whatever you want to call yourself. If you are a human being living in this world and living in this particular city, you struggle with greed. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Pastor Tim Keller tells a very interesting story that illustrates this very point. Listen to what he says uh, in this story in his book. He He writes this, quote, Some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet the week you deal with greed, you will have your lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride. But nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart, end quote. According to Keller, greed handicaps a person with spiritual blindness to where they aren't even aware that they struggle with greed itself. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Solomon goes on to further tell us that there is another handicap that greed inflicts upon us. And what is that handicap? Verse 2, listen to what he says. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But instead, a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Now, when you first read these verses, it almost makes God look like a very bad person, right? Because it makes God look like a, uh, what do you call it, someone who teases you, right? Here is God giving certain kinds of people wealth, honor, and possessions, and yet those very same people, God doesn't give them power to enjoy these very blessings, right? And you read that, and you're like, wow, God, why are you being such a tease? Why do you give us all this wonderful wealth, all this wonderful possessions, only the inability to enjoy them? What is up with that, God? And it almost makes God look like an evil, bad person in the Bible, but that is not how we are to understand it. And the reason why I say that is because of Solomon's reference to the stranger, Right? You guys see the stranger? Right? Starting in verse 2. Now, we don't know much about who this stranger is, but there are two obvious things that we know about this stranger. First obvious thing that we see, and this might be a little bit ridiculous to say, but it's necessary to point out, is that this stranger is a complete stranger to the greedy person of verse 2. The first obvious thing we know about this stranger is that he's a complete stranger to the greedy person of verse 2. Which means this stranger has no idea how hard the greedy man had to work in order to acquire all his money. This stranger has no idea to the kinds of sacrifice that the greedy person had to endure in order to accumulate all his wealth. And because that's the case, there's a second obvious thing we know about this stranger. And that is this stranger has no problem spending this greedy man's money. You see, the stranger in this text has power that the greedy man does not have. He has power in spending money that he did not have to earn, right? And friends, isn't this also true in our day and age? Isn't it easy for people to spend other people's money rather than their own money? Don't people tend to be very generous in how they spend other people's money than how they spend their own money? I mean, don't we see this all the time in the news? We read about politicians frivolously spending taxpayers' hard-earned money on programs and and wonderful dinners and wonderful vacations so they can do their work as politicians. We hear about, you know, corporate executives notoriously spending their share 
uh, holders money on retreats where you have CEOs flying down on a zip line or riding on a horse with fireworks in the background. You know, this really happens in the news. But how about you? Yeah, you, you who are not CEO, you who are not a powerful corporate politician. What about you? When you find yourself in a situation like that, don't you also do the same thing? Maybe some of you young college students or post-college students can relate. Let's say, you know, you have to get something to eat, right? And you go to McDonald's, and you have to pay for that meal. What part of the menu are you going to order from? Most likely, if you were like me in college, you're going to order from the dollar menu, right? And the person asks, well, you want something to drink? Uh, Water. No, 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 not bottled water. Tap water, please. But as soon as someone takes you out to lunch, maybe Pastor James wants to take you out to lunch, or Pastor John wants to take you out to lunch, you know, you go to McDonald's, Hey, what do you want? Big Mac, super size, please, and I'll take the extra apple pie there. Yes, right? Come on. We all do this. We do this all the time because the point is the greedy person is that way. The greedy person has no power to spend the material blessings that God gives him. Why? Because he is a cheap and stingy person, which means the only person to blame as to why a greedy person cannot enjoy the material blessings that God gives them is because of them, because they are cheap, because they are stingy. And here's the thing, folks, when you are cheap and stingy with yourself, with your resources, oh, yes, you're going to be cheap and stingy with other people with your resources, right? Of course we are, because that is what greed does to us. Greed makes you so self-absorbed, so selfish, to where if you're not willing to indulge in the blessings that God gives you in the form of material wealth, then you're certainly not going to do that with other people, which means you're not going to be a generous person. You're going to be a selfish miser, counting every penny to the point where you're willing to starve yourself and maybe even starve other people so that you can hoard and hold on to all this wealth all to yourself. Because by nature, we always love ourselves more than we love other people. That's just the way it plays out. That is what greed does to us. It makes you a cheap skate person to where you hold on to things stubbornly to yourself to where you're not willing to enjoy the blessings God gives you, or let anyone else enjoy the blessing God gives you. Hence, you are selfish, you are not generous. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're looking at the passage of Scripture that I got all this from, and you might have, if you have a nitpicking personality, (laughs) might want to say to me, "Uh, Pastor, I'm sorry to point this out. Can we have the text back up there for just a moment? You know, if if you look at the text, specifically in verses um, 2, do we have the verse up there, the chapters? There it goes. You know, you look at the text... And you might say, you know, Pastor, I hate to point this out, but actually verse 2 says that it's God that doesn't give the greedy man power to enjoy them. You know, it doesn't actually say that it's the greedy man's greed that prevents him from having the power. So what you're saying here doesn't sound right. What do you have to say about that, Pastor? Here's what I have to say. This leads me to my next point. Why our greed for money is bad for us. Read again with me our passage starting in verse 3 where Solomon writes, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered moreover it is not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he pause right there your attention please Solomon, as he continues to talk about the evils of greed, does something very interesting. He compares a greedy person to a stillborn child, a child that's born dead, a child that is born stillborn. And interestingly, what does he say in verse 3? He says specifically, a stillborn child is better off than a greedy person. 
Now you're like, what? Solomon, what are you talking about? What do you mean a stillborn child is at an advantage over a greedy person? How in the world, what possible advantage could a child born dead have any sort of advantage over a greedy person? Does that make sense to you? Well, listen to what he says in verse 5. Moreover, it, the stillborn child, has not seen sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Come on back. Solomon tells us that a stillborn child doesn't know anything about life, right? It has no exposure to life. It has no understanding of life. It doesn't know anything about the nature of life. And yet, it does know something, one thing, that puts it at an advantage over a greedy person. Question, what does a stillborn child know that the greedy man does not? He says it right here. He finds rest. He knows rest. Rest is simply the Bible's nice way of referring to death. To death. You see, according to Solomon, even though a stillborn child doesn't know anything about life, it does know death, right? And that knowledge is what gives him the advantage over the greedy person. Because that's the one thing, excuse me, the greedy person doesn't know. The greedy person doesn't know what the dead child knows. The dead child knows death. It's experiencing death. It knows what death is. And the greedy person does not. And for that very reason, that's why the greedy person is at a disadvantage compared to the stillborn child. Let me further explain what I mean. One of the underlying assumptions that greedy people have is that they assume that they have endless time. One more time. One of the underlying assumptions that greedy people have in their greed is that they have endless time. And what that basically means is that they assume that they have all this future time in the future where they can eventually enjoy all the wealth that they're working so hard right now to get to, right? They believe that, oh, yes, I will eventually get to my time with my kids. I will eventually get time with my wife. I will eventually take my family on vacation. I will eventually do what I should be doing. But for now, I just got to work. You see, that is the underlying assumption that a lot of greedy people have. They just assume they just have boundless amounts of endless time in the future where they could eventually get to enjoying the material blessings. But until then, what are they going to do now? Work, 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 work. So that even when they try to not work, they're still working, right? They go on vacation. What do they bring? Laptop, right? They're having dinner with their spouse on their anniversary. When she goes to the bathroom, what does he do? Check his phone for that important email, right? When he goes to his child's graduation, you know, these once-in-a-lifetime milestones, when he should be present, when he should be enjoying the moment, where's his mind? Oh, next week's meeting that I have to do with my manager, with my boss. Greedy people assume that they just have all this endless amount of time in the future where they can eventually do the things that they're just not getting to, that they're just pushing aside because they're so focused on getting more and more and more, working now, 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 so I can have more wealth later, later, later. And Solomon says, if you think that way, you are an utter fool because you are assuming what? That you are going to live forever that you are an immortal, that there is a time where life on earth never ends for you, that you are simply going to live forever and ever to where you can just assume this endless time and therefore live in maintaining this greedy present moment that you are in right now. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're like, Pastor, I think you're being a little melodramatic, aren't you? Really? Greedy people really think they're going to live forever? (laughs) They really think they're immortal? They think they're never going to die? Come on. Greedy people don't think that way. I mean, granted, Maybe greedy people assume that they have a little bit more time than they're warranted in believing. But surely, 
no greedy person seriously assumes that they're going to live forever, that they, they can have immortal life and that they're never going to die, right? I mean, that's just exaggerated talk. Solomon can't really be saying that in our passage. Oh, really? Listen to what he says in the first half of verse 6. Even though he, the greedy person, should live a thousand years twice over, yet still they will enjoy no good. What is he saying here? He's saying, look, guys, even if it was possible for a human being to live 2,000 years, you know, a thousand years twice over, that still will not cause his greed to settle down to where he is willing to take one moment out of these 2,000 years, just a moment, to enjoy the blessings that God has given them through material blessings. That's what Solomon is saying. He's like, this guy, let's say there is a mutant out there who could live for 2,000 years. I'll tell you what, the human heart is so corrupted with greed that they'll still work as if they can even live longer than 2,000 years because they won't even stop in that span of 2,000 years to just enjoy and to receive and to give glory to God by enjoying the blessings that they give him. I don't know about you, when a guy thinks he can live longer than 2,000 years, I would venture to guess that he probably thinks he's going to live forever, right? That's the fundamental problem of greed and that is the power that God does not give the greedy person that is the power that God will never give a greedy person he will never give a give excuse me give a greedy person immortality right to live forever I mean if you think about it it makes total sense why in the world would God give immortality to a person when he's in a condition where all he cares about is just taking 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 more 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 for me 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 Why would God ever give eternal life or immortal life to a person in such a parasitic condition, especially when you consider the kinds of destructions and damages that person gives in that condition? What are you talking about? What damages? What destruction, Pastor John? Read along at what it says in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good thing, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Here Solomon paints a very, very sad picture. Here is a man who out of his greed neglected the most important relationships in his life, his family, namely his own children. It's so grim. Here is a guy who has 100 kids. First of all, I don't even know if that's possible, but here's a guy who has 100 kids, right? I'm about to have four kids, my fourth. I don't, I don't, think how I, I don't know how I did it. So here's a guy, however, who has 100 kids, right? And not one, not even one, cares enough about their pops to give him a decent burial, right? I would imagine that if this guy, if this is a real person, I would imagine that the last breath he breathed out right before he died was probably this, (sighs) right? He breathed out that sigh that says, meaningless, meaningless, all of it is meaningless, because that is what greed does. That is why greed is bad bad for us, because it is so toxic that it destroys and ruins the most precious and important relationships that we are to prioritize and value above all, right? Now, I know that professionals here in New York City, especially, you know, we try to justify this kind of behavior by saying things like, oh, but you don't understand, Pastor. How else can I provide my children the best opportunities? I have to work 80 hours a week. I have to work 90 hours a week. How else am I going to give them the opportunities that I've never had, like the best schooling, the best neighborhood, the best daycare, right? I have to work this much and make this much money because how else am I going to give them these kinds of advantages, these kinds of opportunities? I have to make this kind of money. You know, I find it so interesting that people would say this, but then I can totally see how fast-forwarding 
30, 40 years from now, these same professionals who never spent any time but yet justified it by saying, I'm doing it for the kids, when their kids grow up to be professionals, they work countless hours and they make lots of money so mom and dad can go to the most exclusive, the nicest, most comfortable nursing homes, even if it's a thousand miles away. And yet those parents at that point think very differently, do they? Don't they? Because if you talk to a lot of people who are in geriatric nursing homes, do you ever hear them saying, oh, wow, I'm so grateful that my child never sees me, makes all this money so that I can be comfortable, get all this nursing and medical treatment? No. Have you ever done nursing home ministry? I have. And many of them always say things like, they never call. They never visit. They never come and show me my grandkids. Oh, I see. It was okay for you to neglect spending time with your kids because you were so busy making money. But as soon as your kids do the same to you, oh, all of a sudden that's wrong? Look, can we be honest for a moment? Can we be real? Okay. Can we just admit what the real reason, what drives so many people and maybe drives you to work so much so that you can make so much money? If you need a little help, take a listen to this quote from Tim Keller again in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes this quote, we may never actually burn incense to Artemis, which was the goddess of love, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige, end quote. What does he say? He's saying, guys, it's not that hard to figure out. It's not rocket science. Rocket science. The reason why people and maybe why you are so fixated on working so much so that you can make more money is not because, quote, unquote, you're trying to provide the best opportunities. No. The cold, hard truth is... It's because you love money more than you love your family. That's why. The reason why you work so hard so you can make so much more is not because you're trying to provide. It's because you're trying to worship money. That's what greed is, by the way. Greed is literally the worship of money. The worship of money. Where money is your master. Money is your king. Money is your lord. And you are the servant of money and you do whatever it means. And you sacrifice whoever you need to sacrifice in order to please this God known as money. That's the stone-cold truth. And so the question that we're left with, is there any hope for us? Is there any way that we can be loosened by the grips of greed and therefore spare our family destruction and pain to where they hate us and we end up dying alone? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, how we can be saved from our greed for money. Leaving now Ecclesiastes 6, let's now go over to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 24. We're fast-forwarding a few thousand years where Jesus says these words. Quote, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here Jesus flats out, tells us how you can overcome this greed. And how do you overcome it? It's simple. The way you overcome greed is by stop worshiping money and instead worship the true and living God. Or if I could put it in Jesus' terms, the way God, no, excuse me, the way money is no longer your master is when you submit your life to God as your master. Okay? And so here we come to the end of our message, and so we ask ourselves this question. Who is the better master? Is money the better master or is God the better master? Let's take a look at it one by one. First, let's consider money. What kind of master is money? What does this taskmaster say to us when we choose to submit our lives to it? Money says, work, work, work. Keep working. 
Don't spend time with family. Don't spend time with friends. Don't prioritize these important people. Just work, 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 so that through your work you can have more money for yourself. Right? Just do it. Right? But, of course, we just saw the catastrophe of destruction and pain that that causes to ourselves and to our loved ones. Clearly, money as our taskmaster, money as our God, is a dangerous route to go in life. Well, then, then we consider, well, what about God? What if God is our master? What kind of master is God over us? How does he master himself over us? Well, it's interesting. Because unlike money, which just says work, 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 and then you can eventually have wealth, our God says, I will work on your behalf. And through my work, you will acquire a wealth that you could never acquire, no matter if you worked for 2,000 years straight all the time. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel, right? Because what does the gospel teaches us? The gospel teaches us that God, out of his deep and personal love for you, singular, became a man, Jesus Christ, and he did a work that none of us could do and survive. He took on the full brunt and the full weight of all of our sins, the wrath of God for our sins, past, present, and future. And why? Because if you repent of your sins and believe that God truly loves you this extravagantly, you would receive the greatest blessing of all. What is one of the greatest blessings that God gives us in the gospel? Immortality. There it is. He gives us eternal life. And the gospel tells us that he gives us this eternal life in his heavenly kingdom. Let me emphasize here the location, the realm of where immortality is found. Right? Where is immortality found for those who submit to God as their master? It's found in God's heavenly kingdom. You know, the gospel doesn't just tell us how to have eternal life. It also tells us where eternal life is. And it's not here on earth. It's not here in this realm. It cannot be lived out right here, right now in this reality. No, eternal life, immortal life, is with God in his heavenly kingdom as we pass through death. Right? That is what scripture teaches us. Which means what? If you remember what the gospel teaches us in terms of how we get saved and where we live for eternity, I promise you the power of greed will loosen its grip over you. Because the fundamental problem with greed is that it assumes that they can have immortality now. It just assumes I will eventually have time to get to these people in my life. No. When you remember immortality is only found after death, It reminds you that your time here on earth is limited, which means you should be prioritizing those people now, not some presumed future endless time you think you'll eventually get to and therefore spend it with them. No, you need to prioritize these people now because this is not the time of eternity. This is not the time of immortality. This is the time of preparation for eternity, right? Isn't that what Rick Warren says? That this life is not for you to be remembered. This is the life in which you are to prepare for eternity. And part of that preparation means that you prioritize people that you're called to love, serve, and nurture, and disciple, and to build up for the sake of the world. Right? That is what Scripture teaches us. And when you remember that, by remembering the gospel, you will kill the fuel that drives people to be so greedy. And so here's my question to you, NCF. How are you doing right now with your greed? Don't tell me you're not a greedy person because you are a greedy person. Just like I'm a greedy person, everyone is a greedy person. But my question is, are you remembering the gospel? Because by remembering the gospel, you are remembering where 
immortality is and where it is not. And so my question is, have you remembered where immortality is properly and where it is not? You know, one of the best ways that you can tell whether or not you know that is by assessing your time with the people you're called to spend time with. Let me ask you a series of diagnostic questions. How often do you generally spend real quality, genuine time with family and friends? How often do you generally commit and prioritize time with people that you won't have much time with later on in life? How are you, husbands, spending time with your wives? How are you, wives, spending time with your husbands? How are you, parents, spending time with your children? And if you're not married and if you don't have kids, let me ask you, how often do you prioritize spending time with mom, dad, brother, sister, friends who are like family? And furthermore, for all of you, how often do you prioritize and spend time with other Christians? Other Christians? Yeah, other Christians. Guess what? If you're a Christian and another person is a Christian, the Bible says you guys are family, right? You're brothers and sisters in Christ. How often have you made the conscious, intentional effort of spending time with other brothers and sisters in the faith to where you are living life together, praying life together, you know, serving life together, sharing life together? If your answers to any or all of these questions are none, I'm sorry to say, you are a greedy person. You are. And you are destined of living a meaningless, pathetic life, just like the greedy person in verse 2, where you're just doomed to live by yourself, die by yourself, to where no one is going to mourn you after you're gone. What a sad case to be, and what a polar opposite picture of what it's supposed to be when a saint leaves this earth. We're going to talk about this next week, but you know, when a saint dies, when a Christian dies, there should be mourning, not silence. And yet, if you follow this path of greed, if you're not careful, silence is what you're going to be left with. If you keep this pursuit of following the values of this city, which is work, 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 so I can take more, 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 so that I can pile up higher, higher, higher wealth, possessions, then I'm not even willing to enjoy or share with other people. NCF, my hope for all of us is that you and I would never fall into the traps of what our city tells us to do, which is just work and build, work and build, keep to yourself, and isolate yourself, and then just die and be forgotten. What a tragedy it would be for people who are destined to be remembered and to be mourned and to be a blessing in this world. What is it going to be, folks? How are you going to be remembered? Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would truly challenge us in not falling into the failures of the rich young ruler, the greedy person, the miser, the selfish, the overly wealthy, the sinfully greedy. God, we see in Scripture the destiny of such folly. And, Lord, we do not want to be a part of it. We do not want to be those people who bring more devastation, more heartache, and more destruction to our loved ones, to friends, to family, to the church. Instead, Lord, we want to be the polar opposite. We want to be a source of tremendous blessing. We want to be remembered by loved ones because we have given selflessly and generously by avoiding the seduction of greed. Father, help us to truly, as the psalmist says, to number our days so that we would be wise in how we live now. God, to not neglecting the people that you brought into our lives for the purpose of spending time with, of investing, of pouring into, of serving and lifting up and alleviating their burdens as they alleviate ours. God, would you help us to see the wisdom 
of not being drawn in to the allurements of wealth and money, but instead to the wealth and honor and glory that comes from faith in Jesus. God, we truly pray that we would be men and women who brings blessing to our families, to our churches, to our city, to our world, rather than a parasite that tries to suck it all for themselves. Father, would you help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.